Today, on November 6th, um, we celebrate the birthday of Marland Gammon of Council Bluffs. So, we wish Marland a very happy birthday. I um, also just had the other celebrity birthday list here. Actor June Squibb of Nebraska is 94. Sally Field, the Flying Nun, is 77. Jazz trumpeter Arturo Sandoval is 74. Former news correspondent Maria Shriver is 68 today. Um, Peter Peter DeLuis is 57. Ethan Hawke is 53. Celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson is 53. And actor Emma Stone is 35. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now we'll turn to today's obituaries. First, the death notices. Duane Dixon, age 77, of West Des Moines, died on November 1st. Nelda Johansson, age 90, of Sheraton, died on November 2nd. Mark Reeks, age 72, of Hubbard, died on November 3rd. And Verl J. or Bud Summers, age 98, of Newton, died on November 4th. There are two obituaries. I'll read the first one, and Nicole will take the second. The first is from Iowa Falls, and it's the obituary of Donna Selma Kane. Donna Selma Kane, age 78, of Iowa Falls, Iowa formerly of Des Moines, passed away peacefully on November 4, 2023, at Scenic Living Community. She will be remembered by many for her laughter great stories, and a sassy embrace of life. Donna was born on August 27, 1945, in Centerville, Iowa, to Moni and Helen Rose. She spent her school years in Des Moines and her summer months on the Hellyer family farm in Moravia. Donna graduated from Lincoln High School in 1963. She was blessed with lifelong friendships from grade school at Washington Elementary through high school at Lincoln. Donna met Robert, or Bob Wayne Kane, while working with his sister, Patty, at Banker's Life in Des Moines. Donna and Bob were united in marriage on November 18, 1967, at the Clifton Heights Presbyterian Church in Des Moines. They enjoyed 56 years of marriage. Donna and Bob spent most of their married lives on the south side of Des Moines, then moved to Iowa Falls following retirement 13 years ago to spend time with their grandchildren. She worked several jobs, including Yonkers and Canteen, until she landed her long-term career with the Des Moines Public Schools as an interpreter for deaf students. Interpreting and advocating for deaf children was Donna's passion for over 25 years. She furthered her education at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. 
She often joked about her career highlights that included interpreting for the rich and famous, Mr. T and Bill Clinton. Due to being a child of deaf parents, her skills were considered the highest of the Iowa Board standards for interpreting licensure. Donna's Christian beliefs began as a member of the Iconium United Methodist Church in Moravia. She encouraged her daughters to embrace an understanding of all faiths. Nonetheless, she would often be heard acknowledging her blessings by declaring, quote, It's a thank you, Jesus day, end quote. Donna enjoyed spending time with family, traveling to Okoboji, entertaining friends, playing games, reading, shopping, hosting large Christmas parties, great stories, watching PBS, and a smoky casino. Donna was a believer in education and exposing her daughters to a variety of art, dance, and different cultures. Their adventures often involved uncontrollable laughter and mischief. Many have cherished memories of Bob and Donna's welcoming home. Donna is survived by her husband, Bob, of Iowa Falls, children, Lorick, Laura Brunson of Iowa Falls, and Allison Brennan of Iowa Falls, granddaughter Paige of Los Angeles, Aaron of Ames, and Morgan of Iowa Falls, grandson Mitch of Iowa Falls, brothers-in-law Ron Kane, Mervyn Vaughn, and Hugh Taylor, sisters-in-law Janice Thomas, Janice Kane, Patty Boot, Lucy Vaughn, and Wanda Taylor, and 20 nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, her in-laws, a brother and brothers-in-law, and a sister-in-law. Funeral services for Donna will be held at Hamilton's Funeral Home on Lyon Street in Des Moines on Friday, November 10th at 11 a.m. with visitation prior from 9 to 11. Memorial contributions may direct, be directed to the family in loving memory of Donna. And today we'll remember Barbara Lowe of Norwalk. Barbara Jean Lowe of Norwalk, Iowa, passed away peacefully on November 3rd, surrounded by her loving family at Kavanaugh House in Des Moines. Visitation will be on November 7th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Isles Funeral Home in Norwalk. The celebration of life will be November 8th at 11 a.m. There will be a luncheon following. A private burial will be held at a later date. Barb was born on August 15, 1940, to Elmer and Dorothy Germer in Boone, Iowa. She graduated from Boone High School in 1958 and married Gary Lowe, her only love and high school sweetheart. In 1958, she was a volunteer at many places, including homeroom mother, also taught Sunday school and Bible school, member of the Norwalk Garden Club and also the past president, Christian Women's Club, and with five other friends started the Red Hat Club in Norwalk. Barb was a 4-H leader with her husband, Gary, Warren County Fair. She served on the Warren County Extension Council and also provided luncheons at different farm sales. Barb and Gary spent many winters at their home in Apache Junction in Arizona. She loved gardening, especially flowers and tomatoes, playing cards with friends, kids, and grandkids. She also loved her bingo. She worked as a secretary for the Norwalk Christian Church and Mercy Hospital and Clinics. She wanted to be known as the best Grammy in the world, and she was. She is survived by her devoted husband, Gary Lowe, daughter Terry Lamberts of Des Moines, son Mark Lowe of Norwalk, five granddaughters, Sarah, Amber, Lauren, Emma, and Jess, eight great-grandchildren, Tyler, Ava, Samantha, Charlie, Keegan, Duke, Joey, and Kenyon. 
She is also survived by five sisters: Joanne, Portia, Rose, Linda, and Kay. One brother, David. One brother-in-law, Conley, as well as forty-six nieces, forty-eight nephews, and numerous great nieces and great nephews. Her loved ones who have passed away are infant son Andy and granddaughter Jillian, who passed away far too soon. Other loved ones who have passed are her parents Elmer and Dorothy Grimmer, three sisters Violet, Elaine, and Nora, three brothers Richard, Dalbert, and Leonard, and her lifelong best friend Janet Dittmer. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions are to be designated to the Cumming Community Church or Shriners Hospital. You can also view a live stream of those services or leave an online condolences at islescares.com. And to wrap up obituaries, there is a quote at the bottom of the page. It says, "As is a tale, so is a life. Not how long it is, but how good it is, is what matters." And now Rachel will return to our story about Boys Town on where we left off. Forgot to turn on my microphone. Sorry, we、uh, were in the middle of part of the narrative about Omaha's support for Boys Town. It's one of the biggest donor receivers in Nebraska, said State Senator. No, I'm sorry. Said a donor, Lily Manuel, that money is always going to be there, always. Outside the state, some who give to Boys Town readily admit they have little or no knowledge about it, other than the idyllic depictions they see on social media. Scrolling her Facebook feed, Diane Priggy of Provo, Utah, said she donates because she loves hearing the success stories and seeing the happy faces of the teens sent to a place she's never been. Priggy said she's compelled to give part of her social security, all that she lives on, a couple times a year because she remembers wishing she would have had a place like Boys Town, to turn to when she was young. She also has a daughter who, because of hard luck, she said she was unable to raise. My heart just goes out to the place, she said, and at Christmas time they sent out the most beautiful Christmas cards I've ever seen. The federal government has scaled back what it's willing to pay for foster kids in residential care. With Congress's enactment of the Family First Prevention Services Act five years ago, new restrictions aim to push states to dramatically reduce their reliance on long-term congregate care facilities in favor of community-based programs and services closer to children's families. Today, federal funds cover long-term residential treatment programs only if they treat acute health needs or if they are independent living programs for older teens transitioning out of foster care, for pregnant or parenting teens, teens, or for youths at risk of sex trafficking. In the past five years, fewer than 290 youth have been enrolled at Boys Town's private school on the west side of Omaha. According to the Nebraska Department of Education, that's less than half the home's capacity of 600, according to licensing records. With an annual budget that is greater than the city of Omaha's, modern-day Boys Town is a much more diverse organization than the one Flanagan started. It markets a wide mix of healthcare. Therapy, research, and preventive programs more in keeping with changes in child welfare and education. 
as states across the country, including Iowa, have run out of room in residential facilities to house abused and neglected children amid a shortage of community-based providers. Father Flanagan's Boys Home, the Nebraska home campus, has continued to limit the number of boys and girls it accepts. Today's population at Boys Town encompasses a mix of kids who have suffered abuse and neglect, offenders from the juvenile justice system, or others who need psychotropic medication or help with behavior problems. The home does not take kids who have developmental disabilities or those who need drug treatment. Volmer said Boys Town spends more than most programs would to ensure quality services for the children in its care. We have allocations from the endowment fund to make sure we are operating at a high level, she said. Unlike at other programs, youths live in family settings with trained house parents, experience typical youth activities like school sports or summer camp, and learn social, academic, and decision-making skills aimed at helping them be more successful. Most youths return home before they would graduate from Boys Town High School, but everyone who stays graduates, Volmer said. Children's chances of staying in school are higher, about 84%, if they go through Boys Town programming than if they're in the foster care system, where the graduation rate is more like 50%, Volmer said. Outcomes have varied in different studies. The 50% graduation rate comes from an oft-cited 2011 longitudinal study on the adult functioning of former foster youth conducted by the University of Chicago. And when the ribbon was cut in August on Boys Town's new school and bows splash holy water from Ireland on the three-story, 110,000-square-foot building, the organization was still soliciting donations for the building. In September, it said on its website that it was still $5 million short of its $30 million fundraising goal. At least 6,400 donors from all 50 states have already chipped in more than $25 million to the cause, according to the website. Boys Town, which used its own municipal bonding authority for the project, also received $10 million from Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds from the state and $125,000 from Douglas County. Questions from nonprofit watchdogs, journalists, and philanthropy experts about Boys Town spending on fundraising and the amount it has held in the reserves are not new. In 1994, Father Flanagan's Boys Home sued the American Institute of Philanthropy, the organization that became Charity Watch, for giving it an F rating for stockpiling assets. Then, then more than $500 million that far exceeds its expenses. The Institute called it one of its nation's least needy charities. The lawsuit alleged the low-grade defamed Boys Town and damaged its fundraising ability. At that time, the Institute says that Boys Town had enough money in the bank to finance its operations for 5.9 years. Today, it holds enough to fund operations for about 3.6 years, still a substantial amount, according to nonprofit experts. The lawsuit ended in a private settlement. If they are giving donors the impression that most of their donations are going to a specific program, say, housing children, but then they are spending most funds on other programs, that is an example of their marketing materials not aligning with what their finances reveal. 
Lori Styron, that's the executive of Charity Watch, says that nonprofit experts say the growing number of nonprofit spinoff organizations, including endowments, are making it more difficult for donors to get a clear picture of the organization's finances and whether their spending remains true to their charitable cause. Beth Gasly, a professor of public affairs at Indiana University and affiliate faculty member at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, said, "If the one goal we have is transparency for the donor, you should know how the organization spends its money. When they spin off related organizations, I think that becomes more problematic for the average donor." In an era when Americans know more youth are troubled and residential facilities across the country have been closing, Styron of Charity Watch questions the ethics of Boys Town, focusing so much on its donor marketing, on the relatively few needy wards it serves today. If they're giving donors the impression that most of their donations are going to a specific program, say House and Kids, but then they are spending most of the funds on other programs, that is an example of their marketing materials not aligning with what their finances reveal," she said. Lee Rod's Reader Watchdog column helps Iowans get answers and accountability from public officials, the justice system, businesses, and nonprofits. The Pulitzer Center provided a $3,000 grant to help offset some of the costs for this reporting. That includes traveling for Rod and photographer Zach Boyden Holmes. There are some related stories about Boys Town also in the front section of today's Des Moines Register, but we'll take a pause to look at some other news. This from the Nation and World Extra of the USA Today for today: Iowa Governor will endorse DeSantis for president. This by Thomas Thomas Beaumont of the AP from Des Moines. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds plans to endorse Ron DeSantis for president, giving the Florida governor's 2024 campaign a boost as he struggles to show progress against Donald Trump in the Republican primary. Two people familiar with the matter said this on Sunday. DeSantis has pinned his chances of emerging as an alternative to Trump, alternatively squarely on Iowa. Reynolds is well liked within the GOP and will break with long-standing Iowa tradition to endorse DeSantis. Iowa's governor typically stays neutral before the caucuses that kick off the Republicans' nomination calendar in January. As people familiar with the matter spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity before a Monday rally in Des Moines, where Reynolds is expected to announce her endorsement. The Des Moines Register and NBC News first reported the anticipated endorsement. Reynolds had introduced DeSantis at political events in Iowa and appeared with Florida First Lady Casey DeSantis without publicly declaring her support. But the governor often noted her shared policy priorities and accomplishments, including a bill banning abortion at six weeks of pregnancy before many women know they are pregnant. Reynolds, who is in her second term, had left open the possibility of lending her caucuses. She had introduced Trump. Excuse me. There's the right page at an event in March, but Trump has accused her of disloyalty for weighing an endorsement before the caucuses and tried to take credit for her winning the governorship. His campaign quickly criticized Reynolds on Sunday. 
Quote, Kim Reynolds apparently has begun her retirement tour early, as she clearly does not have any ambition for higher office. Earlier this year, she promised her constituents that she would remain neutral in the race, yet she has completely gone back on that promise. Regardless, her endorsement will not make any difference in this race. End quote. Trump also weighed in in a series of angry social media posts accusing Reynolds of disloyalty and reneging on her pledge to remain neutral. Quote, if and when Kim Reynolds of Iowa endorses Ron DeSanctimonious, who is absolutely dying in the polls both in Iowa and nationwide, it will be the end of her political career in that MAGA would never support her again, just as MAGA will never support DeSanctimonious again, he wrote. Two extremely disloyal people getting together is, however, a a very beautiful thing to watch. They can now remain loyal to each other because nobody else wants them. Trump is the heavy favorite to win in Iowa. DeSantis is competing with former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley to emerge in the leadoff contest just 10 weeks away as a viable alternative to Trump. A month ago, DeSantis sent about 20 of his Tallahassee-based campaign headquarters staff to Iowa. The Super Political Action Committee supporting him, Never Back Down, has had roughly two dozen staff reaching out to would-be caucus participants since the summer. On Friday, DeSantis spoke to about 50 GOP activists at an early afternoon stop in Denison, the heart of Republican-heavy Crawford County. It was the 86th Iowa County he's visited on a mission to visit each of its 99 and the last puzzle piece in the block of conservative western Iowa. Reynolds is popular within the party, in part for signing a school choice bill and strict abortion ban this year. Nicole? Thanks, Rachel. I do want to end our coverage on Lee Rod's coverage today um, after learning so much about a charity. So what should you know before you donate money to a charity? This is also from Lee Rod and continuing coverage from her piece uh, with Boys Town. So some recommendations from Charity Watch. It is an independent charity watchdog. If you're considering a donation, first, know your charity. Charities do have an obligation to provide detailed information to interested donors. Never give a charity you know nothing about. Request literature and a copy of the charity's latest annual report, including its annual consolidated financial statement. These often can be found on an organization's website. A consolidated audit provides a more complete picture of a nonprofit's operations because it includes the financial activities of multiple legal entities and it eliminates inter-organizational transactions. Charity tax filings frequently contain self-reported information intentionally that is designed to frame the charity's financial activities in the best possible light. Audited financial statements are most reliable sources because they're the produced by third-party certified public accountants. If a charity does not provide you with the information requested, you may want to think twice about giving to it. The best charities typically encourage your interest and respond to your questions. Find out where your dollars go. 
Ask how much of your donation goes for general administration and fundraising expenses, and how much is left for the program services you want to support. Most highly efficient charities spend 75% or more on programs. You can calculate the nonprofit's cost to raise a dollar. A common metric used to calculate fundraising efficiency is divide the total amount on fundraising included in the consolidated financial report divided by the unrestricted revenue raised. Don't respond to pressure. Don't let yourself be pressured into contrib- contributing on the spot. If you're not familiar with the charity, request additional information in writing and inspect it carefully. No legitimate organization will pressure you to give immediately. Here are some common questions about regulations of charities and their activities. Are nonprofit fundraising appeals regulated? Laurie Styron, executive director of Charity Watch, and other leaders of Charity Watchdog caution that nonprofits' excessive spending on fundraising has become a national issue. But she says the government regulators can do very little about it. Fundraising appeals are considered a form of communication involving the dissemination of ideas and advocacy of causes. While they are subject to some regulation, the U.S. Supreme Court has said in a mix of rulings that the rules cannot impinge on free speech. Do any government agencies regulate nonprofits? Consumers often assume that regulators step in to stop charities from spending too much on overhead, Styron says. But public charities have no government watchdog or oversight by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Loose IRS reporting rules leave much room for financial manipulation, she said. States' attorneys general and the Federal Trade Commission monitored the fundraising sector for fraud, and the public can check out charities online. But unfortunately, Styron said. It is not enough. And finally, what private sector organizations rate nonprofits? Charity trackers include organizations such as Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance, GuideStar, now called Candid, and of course, Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator is a nonprofit funded through donations. Other organizations that rate nonprofits, including the BBB's Wise Giving Alliance and GuideStar, are funded by the industry itself. Styron says. Some fund evaluations by changing the or charging rather the charities they rate annual fees to publicize their ratings, an inherent conflict of interest. Others offer only robo ratings using unaudited charity tax form data that is republished without an analysis of its completeness or accuracy. The data can do more harm than good by giving donors a false sense of security that a charity has been vetted for financial efficiency or impact. When in reality, some of these charities are simply very good at manipulating their financial reporting, according to Charity Watch. Many do not closely analyze excessive spending on fundraising. That matters because portion of Americans give every year relative to the country's gross domestic product doesn't change much. Charities that spend wisely are true to their mission, invariably lose out, she says. Siren says it is a race to the bottom ethically. Those organizations that are spending an excessive amount of their resources on fundraising often do the best job getting people to donate, even though others may be accomplishing more to scale. And a couple of short notices from、um, Nation and World before we go to our break. From San Jose, California. A California police officer involved in a controversial shooting last year has resigned after the discovery of racist text messages he wrote, including some making light of the shooting. 
the police chief says. Mark McNamara, who joined the San Jose Police Department in 2017, quit last week after being notified of an investigation into his offensive messages, according to Police Chief Anthony Maida. Maida said McNamara was being investigated by the department's Internal Affairs Unit for an unrelated and unspecified matter, and that led to the revelation that he had sent disgusting text messages that demonstrated racial bias. A dossier of text messages show McNamara talking to two unnamed recipients and referring to the March 27, 2022 shooting of Kayon Green, according to the chief. McNamara shot and wounded Green, who is black, after Green appeared to have quelled a fight that broke out inside an eatery near San Jose State University. Green disarmed one of the people in the fight and was backing out of the front door, holding a confiscated handgun in the air when he was shot. Then this from Cincinnati. Cincinnati officials are expressing outrage and horror at a drive-by shooting that sent more than a score of bullets into a crowd of children, killing an 11-year-old boy and striking four other children and an adult. Police Chief Terry Thiech told reporters Sunday that an occupant of a sedan fired 22 rounds in quick succession into a crowd of children just before 9.30 Friday on, cities, on the city's west end. A 53-year-old woman was hit along with the boy who died, three other boys aged 12, 13, and 15, and a 15-year-old girl. One victim remained hospitalized in stable condition. Mayor Aftab Pareval called the shooting sickening and unimaginable and said it occurred in a vibrant neighborhood next to a local park and near an, an historic elementary school. Thiege said it was too early to say whether the shooting was random or targeted, and she declined to discuss other aspects of the investigation. You're listening it's been to Iris. It's been our pleasure to read for you today. I'm Rachel Misselman, and our other reader was Nicole Tam. Now we're going to take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett. We'll continue now with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Thank you, Jeff. Our first article today is from the opinion page, Ohio Should Worry Anti-Abortion Activists by Ingrid Jacques. Conservatives spent decades laser-focused on overturning Roe v. Wade as their best strategy to fight abortion access in the country and protect lives. When the U.S. Supreme Court did just that last year, however, the anti-abortion movement was clearly unprepared for what to do next. That's not the case with supporters of abortion rights. They were ready. When abortion rights were struck from the federal constitution, activists turned to the next best thing, state constitutions. Their next target, Ohio. On Tuesday, voters in this swing state will decide on issue one, whether to enshrine wide-ranging abortion rights into their state's constitution. And it's looking like they will say yes to approving the measure. It's not only the polls that indicate this is the direction voters will go. Following the end of Roe, measures in six other states have firmly come down on the side of abortion rights. GOP-controlled state has big implications for 2024. Last November, three states, including Ohio's neighbor, Michigan, became the first in the country to pass amendments that place sweeping abortion protection into their constitutions. In Michigan's case, that meant the state now has much more lenient provisions than it did under Roe. Ohio is the only state this election with a similar measure on the ballot. What this Republican-controlled state decides this week has big implications for 2024, and that's why it has caught the nation's attention. Issue 1 would cement abortion rights into the Constitution. Abortions would be allowed at least through viability, which is about 24 weeks. But the fear of pro-life advocates is it could go much further and allow for late-term abortions. It could also open the door to overturning existing restrictions on abortions, including parental consent for minors. The measure is purposefully vague and includes leeway for doctors to perform abortions to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. Ohio currently has a six-week abortion ban on the books, but it's on hold due to litigation. Proponents of the constitutional amendment are selling their cause as preserving reproductive decisions, including abortion. A similar strategy proved effective in Michigan. The proposal was billed as a way to keep Roe provisions in place, even though it went much further than that. Once these rights are embedded into a state constitution, changing them becomes very difficult, effectively ending any meaningful debate, debate going forward. A poll from last month found that Ohio's Issue 1 had 58% support, including 39% of Republicans surveyed. A USA Today Network Suffolk University survey from July found that a similar percentage of Ohioans favored the proposal. Proponents of the Issue 1 also got a boost in August, when voters soundly defeated a GOP-backed measure that would have made passing constitutional amendments, such as Issue 1, more difficult. Anti-abortion advocates aren't giving up, however. Amy Natos, uh, press secretary for Protect Women Ohio, which is advocating against the state measure, said, We are feeling very optimistic going into Tuesday. We're seeing a lot of enthusiasm on the ground here, especially with our canvassing efforts and our volunteer efforts. 
She says canvassers have gone door-to-door since early May. Other support has come from Republican Governor Mike DeWine, who won re-election by a huge margin last year. DeWine has described Issue 1 as just not right for Ohio. Any successful political campaign these days requires significant amounts of money, and the fight over abortion is no different. Money is pouring into Ohio, and it looks like supporters of abortion rights are winning the financial race. Since early September, proponents have brought in about $30 million, compared with opponents' $10 million. East Coast money among the biggest contributors to Issue 1. Some of the biggest donations in support of passing the measure have come from outside the state. Millions have come from D.C.-based 1630 Fund, New York-based Open Society Policy Center, linked to billionaire George Soros, the American Civil Liberties Union, and former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Should these East Coast liberals be helping shape Ohio abortion policy? Voters in Ohio, who twice voted for Donald Trump, should be aware of who is influencing their decision. If effort proves successful, abortion activists are ready to expand this push into several other states. A handful of similar measures are expected in 2024, including in Florida and Arizona. Tuesday's results could also influence the conversation about abortion in next year's presidential race. Republicans remain divided on messaging and next steps, and this issue could serve as an impediment for the GOP as it did in the midterm elections. Conservatives were not ready for the state-level fight over abortion after Roe. They need to be ready now. Jeff, back to you. My hope clings to my family's words from Gaza. This piece by Abir Al-Masri, who is a senior research assistant at the Human Rights Watch. She writes, I was born, raised, and live in Gaza. I recently managed to obtain a nearly impossible-to-get permit from the Israel authorities and left Gaza to attend meetings for my work. I was to return on October 11. That never happened. Watching the carnage from outside Gaza has been the hardest experience of my life. I cannot sleep and spend entire days with a throbbing headache. I'm not entirely sure how I'm functioning. I spend my nights awake, alone in a room, holding on only to my family's reassuring messages. We are still alive. More than 9,500 people in Gaza, many of them civilians and children, have reportedly been killed amid Israel's incessant bombing that followed the deadly Hamas assault in which over 1,400 people, many of them civilians and children, were killed and more than 240 hostages taken. I was in a hotel room in Jordan on October 7th, waiting for Israeli authorities to approve my travel home when the nightmare started. Watching this unfold from afar breaks my heart. Civilians and children should always be protected. I feel helpless now as I watch Israeli forces drop thousands of bombs on a on a tiny 140-square-mile strip of land that's home to more than 2 million people. I know there's nowhere to escape. There are no shelters or safe places. Residential buildings, mosques, large sections of refugee camps, schools used for emergency shelters, and entire city blocks have been reduced to rubble. On October 13, 
Israel issued an impossible-to-implement order for more than a million people to flee the northern Gaza Strip. My family members who live in Gaza City had nowhere to go in the south, so they desperately packed the few belongings they could carry and fled to the center of Gaza, but still within the evacuation zone where my sisters live. On October 19th, my 79-year-old father, 71-year-old mother, siblings, nephews, and nieces evacuated my sister's house as Israeli forces pounded the area. After wandering the streets for hours amid relentless bombardment, they found that my sister's home had been destroyed. My family is now split among relatives in a different area in the central part of the Gaza Strip. I wish they could be all together, but I take a little comfort knowing that I at least won't lose all of them in an instant, like so many other families have been wiped out. I will not be able to run like everyone. Every day that passes, I feel the list of my contacts in my phone is shrinking with journalists and people I know killed. How many more of my colleagues and neighbors am I going to lose? I called a friend of mine the other day who, was a f who has a physical disability, who has been sheltering at an overcrowded United Nations Relief and Works Agency school with the within the evacuation zone. Over a lot of background noise, she told me, I lost my wheelchair. If we are ordered to evacuate, I'll not be able to run like everyone. I am so terrified. What will happen to them in a ground invasion? I speak to my family every morning, every night, and in between because I want to know they are still alive. My sister has asked me not to worry if I don't hear back from them because they may not have anywhere to charge their phones since Israel has cut electricity to Gaza. I couldn't help but worry, though, when Gaza experienced a telecommunications blackout October 27th and 28th that cut virtually all of Gaza's population off from one another, emergency services, and the outside world. I texted every single member of my family, but without luck. Hearing their voices again on October 29 brought tears of relief. As difficult as these recent days have been, our suffering did not begin with the Israeli response last month. For more than 15 years, Israeli authorities have imposed sweeping restrictions on the movement of people and goods, which, alongside Egyptian restrictions, have turned Gaza into an open-air prison. In 2021, my organization, Human Rights Watch, determined that it was part of Israeli authorities' crimes against humanity of apartheid and, and persecution. The closure includes a general, generalized ban on travel, outside of narrow exemptions, blocking Palestinian students, professionals, artists, athletes, and others from leaving. Even those who fall within the narrow exemptions of the, or to the closure, such as those in need of life-saving medical care, face restrictions. The majority of people under 30 have never left Gaza. In fact, the first time I traveled out of Gaza five years ago, I was 31. I have survived several prior escalations and then interviewed scores of victims, parents who have lost children, people with disabilities who have struggled to flee, 
attacks. What I've learned from my own experience and experiences of those I've interviewed is that the mental health harm we have experienced never ends. The sound of explosions and the feelings of death around me are memories that will never leave me. Israel's cutting of electricity, water, food, internet, and fuel to Gaza has brought essential health, water, and sanitation services to the brink of collapse. The area's water-pumping wells are forced out of service due to the electricity blackout. With virtually no water entering Gaza, many residents have to rely on groundwater, which is overwhelmingly unfit for human consumption. While trucks of aid have been allowed in through Rafah crossing with Egypt in recent days, it is woefully insufficient to meet the needs of Gaza's population. A friend of mine texted me to say that her family has run out of food and that she used the last money she had to buy water for her children. I keep waiting for the nightmare to end and be able to return home. But with each passing day, I wonder what it is I'll return to, whether the Gaza I know will still be there. The world needs to act before it's too late. Carol? Okay, I'm going to jump in here with um, this wonderful article on Des Moines Storytellers Project. Um, we don't have much time, so I'm going to have to edit it quite a bit. I'm sorry. But um, this is, I thought, a very inspiring story. The storyteller is Sonia Jackson, um, a culture curator. She's an accomplished writer, producer, playwright, and activist, and uses storytelling, media, technology, and lived experiences as a force for good. She's a former senior corporate executive with more than 25 years of experience in communications, reputation management, giving, and social impact. She's a producer and impact producer of Punch Nine for Harold Washington, the first feature-length film about Chicago's first African-American mayor. And um, she does a very good job of, of describing things, which unfortunately we're not going to be able to read at all. But here we go. Um, I grew up in Des Moines, and from the time I was eight years old, I wanted to leave. I fantasized about escaping to a new life outside of town that sometimes left a petite, sickly, caramel-colored kid feeling lonely and out of place. There were probably many reasons I envisioned the Iowa escaping me as my grandma. Grandma had escaped from Iowa after growing up in Gravity, a small farming community just over 80 miles southwest of Des Moines. She was a tall, sturdy woman who called herself Big Boned. I was a short child with oversized bone-rimmed frames and thick glasses that resembled the bottom of Coke bottles. But I saw myself in her. She was my blueprint for shaking the dust off my shoes and leaving small-town life. After relocating to Chicago, Grandma dated gamblers, wrote Policy, the numbers game that was the precursor to the lottery, and carried a small pearl-handled pistol that she would use, in her words, to bust somebody if they got out of line. Grandma loved telling me I was special. She said I was doubly hers because I was her granddaughter and her goddaughter. She often took me to the Des Moines airport. We would park. We could park on the tarmac back then, and we'd eat her freshly made sandwiches jammed with lunch meat or ham sandwich on white bread, wash them down with ice-cold orange soda, and we'd watch airplanes push back taxi and soar into the clear blue sky. 
sitting on top of her late model forest green Chevy Impala, Grandma would ask, where are you going today? As if I had already boarded one of those planes. I'd quickly pick a destination and she would follow up with, what will you do when you get there? Grandma and I had those dates often and my imagination grew with each airport visit. I started researching faraway places and activities to do there, so I was always prepared with a good tale about my impending trips. It was the perfect game for a bookish girl who preferred adults over children. My grandmother understood me and gave me license to dream. At eight, Grandma taught me to play poker. She said if you're going to peep hold cards, you need to have a highball, and then she made me my first drink at eight years old. Southern Comfort and Coke. The drink was hot and medicinal and burned going down. I felt like a grown-up and occasionally took puffs off an imaginary cigarette in a long black holder. Grandma's older sister, Aunt Lulu, also had a significant impact on my life. I loved how Aunt Lulu protected Grandma, who, like me, was baby of the family. Their deep love for each other was palpable, and they were alike and very different. Grandma loved the nightlife, and Lulu, Aunt Lulu loved fun, but she was an academic she was the first African-American woman in the state of Iowa to receive a Ph.D. Aunt Lulu retired after years of being dean of women at Cheney University in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, uh, Like Grandma, Aunt Lulu also loved poker. It didn't go unnoticed that I took to the game very well, especially given my frequent winning streaks. As a kid, I never had to be told to go to bed. I'd start powering down around 7 p.m., and by 8 p.m., I'd give a trite. That's it for me, folks. Offer a hearty place, peace out, and off I'd go to bed. During one of my winning streaks, I tried to make a polite exit, but Aunt Lulu wasn't having it. I'd won far too many of her pennies to be allowed to take a rest for the night. She tried to make me stay up and continue to play, but even dealt a face-up suicide round, but I fell asleep at the card table in a face plant on top of my winnings. I finally escaped Iowa. After graduating from the University of Iowa, I ended up leading global corporate departments and guiding the social conscious of Fortune 500 companies. My career took me all over the world, and I still love to travel. Every time I travel, Grandma is with me, frank and deep in my heart. Um, let's see. Excuse me. When the pandemic started in 2020, my world turned upside down. I'd lived away from Iowa for more than 30 years, mostly in Chicago. It was never on my bingo card to return to Des Moines. Illinois was the second state to completely go on lockdown, and fear and isolation got the better of me. I thought the world was ending, and I had become antisocial, paranoid, agoraphobic. I decided I wanted to be near my oxygen octogenarian parents during those uncertain times. I escaped from Iowa, which also meant I'd spend a lifetime away from them. So I loaded my SUV with as many belongings as I could fit, donned a black N95 mask and thick blue latex gloves, and thank God for heaven giving me the presence of mind to buy a hybrid vehicle. <coughs> oh, excuse me, folks. Um, I did not need to stop for gas to drive from my high-rise condo building to, in Chicago to my parents' house in Des Moines. Now that I'm back in Des Moines, at times it's unfathomable how long I've managed to stay away. 
<clears throat> Both Grandma and Aunt Lulu taught me to dream big. Grandma taught me with our trips to the airport, and Aunt Lulu taught me about overcoming obstacles. Family makes us who we are while teaching us who we need to be. I am back in Des Moines with my family because of love. And love is a great equalizer. Jeff. Quickly to the sports. Uh, first, here's what's on TV today. <clears throat> we have men's college basketball. Gosh, it seems early for that. But uh, <clears throat> there's the Hall of Fame series featuring Georgia versus Oregon from Las Vegas. Then uh, from the Pac-12, Linfield at Oregon State and Samford at Purdue on the Big Ten Network at 630 at 7 o'clock uh, from the ACC, Radford at North Carolina, and on Peacock, Princeton at Rutgers, 7.30. There's a Pac-10 game with Towson at Colorado, and an SEC game, New Mexico State at Kentucky, that's at 8 o'clock, and at 8.30 on the Big Ten Network, James Madison at Michigan State. 9 o'clock, Dartmouth at Duke. 9.30, Morgan State at Arizona from the Pac-12. And at 10 p.m. on TNT, there's the Hall of Fame series, Southern Cal versus Kansas State from Las Vegas. And on FS1, Cal State Fullerton at San Diego State. And uh, nearly midnight, we've got Pac-12 game St. Francis at UCLA. Women's college basketball at 1 o'clock, South Carolina versus Notre Dame from Paris. At 2 o'clock, uh, Hall of Fame series, Southern Cal versus uh, Ohio State from Las Vegas. 5 o'clock from the ACC, High Point at Virginia Tech. 7.30 on TNT, the Hall of Fame series, LSU versus Colorado from Las Vegas. And uh, we've got horse racing at 9.30 p.m., NBA basketball, and NFL football tonight. The L.A. Chargers versus the New York Jets. Carol? Dear Abby, I have recently been diagnosed with a chronic illness. I'm only 40, and I always took for granted I had plenty of life left to live. I'm happily married, but I worry because my husband, Al, has become my caretaker. I feel terrible about it. My condition is very limiting. I'm in pain all the time and may have to stop working completely. I have developed depression and often cry at home. I feel so guilty as if I have ruined his life. Al swears he just wants to be with me no matter what we have to go through. I am just not sure I can handle holding him back from the rest of his life as well. I love him so much. What should I do? Sign changed in Texas. Abby says, Dear Changed, please allow me to offer my sympathy for your diagnosis. Having a painful, life-limiting health condition at such a young age would depress anyone. Please stop adding to it by burdening yourself with guilt for needing your husband's help. He loves you and has assured you he just wants to be with you no matter what. It is important that you discuss your depression and guilt with your doctor. You may need counseling, medication, and perhaps a support group to help you with the life adjustments that may lie ahead. Please gather your resolve to fight these negative emotions and reach out for the help you need. It is there, and once you do, you will realize you have a whole team ready to help you through this. 
Next letter. Dear Abby, I am a book I'm in a book club I started with friends thirteen years ago. Twelve of us have grown close and value, appreciate, and respect each other. I recently invited a childhood friend to join. She is an avid reader. Abby, although she's a nice person, she simply does not fit in with the group. She talks too much, tends to brag a lot, and makes insensitive comments. An example. Two of us are leaving on a cruise soon, and she shared how tacky and claustrophobic she thinks those trips are. The rest of the group were appalled, and I feel awkward that I introduced her into my longtime book club. On the other hand, I cannot fathom telling my childhood friend the group would prefer she not attend. I'm sure it would be hurtful. A few of us are hoping you will have a solution. Please help. Signed, Reading the Room. And Abby says, Dear Reading, how about being completely honest? Tell your childhood friend that if she wants to remain a member of the book club, she will have to brag and talk less and refrain from making insensitive comments. If she asks what you mean by that, repeat the example you shared with me. P.S. While I understand why the two of you who are going on the cruise might have been shocked into silence, it would have been better if those two had spoken up and confronted your friend about why she would have volunteer something so negative. Jeff? Well, that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockard. Earlier, you heard from Nicole Tam and Rachel Mithelman. You can listen to Iowa's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.